בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שבוע טוב, שבוע מבורך. We are back continuing our series of the Jewish Hashkafa, starting a new week, בעזרת השם, with more Torah, with more mitzvot, with uh, more good things, בעזרת השם, to uh, continue working on our neshamot, working on our midot, working on our servitude of Hashem. For any of you that follow the channels uh, closely, whether you're on the WhatsApp groups or you follow online, and uh, Facebook is not censoring us. If that happens miraculously, then you've seen our new clip, the new trailer for uh, the movie, Geenom. Baruch Hashem, we got uh, a lot of feedback for it. We'll talk about it in a moment. Uh, this you tonight, Bezot Hashem, will be for Refua Shlima, for Rabbanit Levana Bat Sarah, Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat, Rav Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Avi Mori David Ben Esriah, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jora, and also for the Atzlacha Rabba for Marsha Bat Julie and her children, and all of Am Yisrael and all of the righteous Noahides that continue to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu as best as they possibly can, but really. Uh, and especially those of you that continue contributing to our campaigns, contributing to our uh, uh, organization to help us do all the things that we're doing. So as I said, we had uh, released today the first of three trailers uh, of the uh, new Gano movie. Uh, there's three trailers. This is the first one. Baruch uh, Hashem, we got, uh, for those of you that saw it, uh, we got a lot of feedback out of it. Uh, you know, a lot of amazing, I can't wait. Uh, wow, all, you know, all the wonderful Baruch Hashem uh, feedback. Of course, the Yetzirah also has to show up once in a while and also interrupt, whether it's censoring by Facebook or different outlets that won't allow the clip out there just because they simply are part of Amalek. But nonetheless, we have to do what we can do and uh, Hashem does the rest. Uh, so we just have to do our Ishtadlut. But um, out of all the comments and everything that, that came out there, there's really two uh, that stood out to me. And Baruch Hashem, there's been many comments, many, uh, many positive ones, uh, mostly positive. Uh, but uh, even the negative were positive. But uh, generally speaking, the, uh, you know, these comments that you get from people, these feedbacks that you get from people give you a good idea of, uh, you know, where you stand, where people stand, you know, to give you a realistic point of view of things. Because a person could easily live in his imagination and, thinks that, uh, and think that the world is very different than what it really is. Uh, and that happens at times uh, to everybody. So uh, it's important to get feedback from uh, the people that are around you, the people that either are watching you or are part of your life. Uh, and Baruch Hashem, the comments that you see on the uh, online are a very good reflection of where things stand. And uh, the two things that, uh, that came out, that stood out for me, is uh, one student of mine, a very dear student, she uh, said, uh, you know, she was very excited for the film. Uh, Baruch Hashem, she's one of the uh, people that contributed to it as well. And for anyone that wants to contribute to be partners with us on this film before it comes out. Sure, there's going to be opportunities to get involved after, but the opportunities before are, uh, you know, obviously a world apart from the opportunities after. Uh, I understand that there are some opportunities that are very costly, but again, if anybody wants to uh, get themselves a special section in Olam Abba, uh and be partners in uh, the most uh, powerful Torah film in history, uh, it's certainly not something that has come easy, not to us and not to anybody else that is going to be a part of it. Uh, but again, it's a uh, whether people contribute or not, we continue to do our work. HaKadosh Baruch Hu pays the bills one way or another. Uh, but we welcome everybody to go to uh, 
gmail.com. Uh, that's uh, G-E-H-I-N-N-O-M.com uh, to uh, contribute to our campaign, whether you want to be a senior partner, which will actually give you the uh, uh, naming rights on the, uh, or naming on the front of the film, your family name, uh, or uh, you'll, uh, you could be a junior partner, which the name will be in the credits. The senior also gets both. Uh, or you could be a promo, uh, uh, we call the uh, promo uh, uh, team, uh, which is much uh, uh, you know, less expensive, but uh, no naming, but you'll have uh, the ability to get uh, 100 USBs of the film when they are uh, released, probably in about six months from now. Uh, this obviously doesn't uh, include shipping, whatever shipping is. So if you live in somewhere in Africa where it costs $1,000 to ship, that obviously has to be added to it. Uh, but nonetheless, anybody that wants to be a part of it and cannot afford any of the first three that I just mentioned can do the same thing like many other people did, which is contribute whatever you want. Uh, but I can tell you one thing, that uh, the, uh, the people that um, you know, were approached or spoken to in the previous films that uh, did not contribute, every single one of them told me they regretted it. Every single one of them told me that they regretted it simply because... Uh, it was such a powerful film and still is a powerful film that's still helping people do tshuva. I think that everything we've done until now, whether it's my personal story or Tikkun Abrit or Chibuta Kever, is uh, a fraction of what this movie is going to be uh, once people see it because it approaches things in a very, very different way uh, than anything else we've done before. Uh, this is a compilation of work uh, that took about four or five years uh, and uh, it's Baruch Hashem, uh, it came out great. So Chazak Uboch to the team behind it. Bezot Hashem will also work on eventually putting it in different languages too. But most importantly, what's coming out in the next few weeks is something that we're very excited about and anybody who wants to be a part of it is welcome to do so. So the two comments that came out that are very relevant to our shiul today is that Many times you see people, you know, either they do tshuva or they've already been religious. And generally speaking, you can tell, you know, where they stand as far as their relationship with God based on their ideology. You know, so when one person says that, uh, you know, one thing about the movie and, uh, and their excitement, while another person says something completely different, you can tell the difference. Now, the two people that I'm talking about, uh, the two very nice people, they're two wonderful people, they're two Jewish people, they're two religious people. Uh, but you'll see that there's an extraordinary ideological difference between the two. One of them said that uh, she's extremely excited for the film. Uh, and in fact, uh, after thinking about it in some of the shiurim that uh, she's learned from us over the uh, years, uh, she believes that this shiur is uh, going to help, this uh, film is going to uh, help stop the next Holocaust from happening. Okay. Uh, now again, we'll we'll give uh, we'll give a uh, 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 a uh, source for everything in a moment. But nonetheless, this is what she said. Now, of course, anybody can say, "Wow, it's too much. It's exaggerated." Fine, no problem. The other person, other person, said something quite different, and he said, "Rabbi, uh, uh, you know, I saw the clip, and uh, I see that it's a uh, it's very uh, aggressive or violent, whatever he, uh, uh, word he used." Uh, don't you think it's Chilul Hashem, meaning it's desecration of Hashem, to show such a film because it will distance Jews from the Torah, from doing tshuva? These are obviously a world apart. 
One is saying that the film is going to stop the next Holocaust from being brought to the world. The other one is saying that this is desecration of God's name, chas v'shalom. So obviously, some, one of them has to be right. Well, good news is, everything that we do always has to be reviewed by much bigger people than I could ever be. Uh, we review it with, uh, with chachamim, with dayanim. And uh, as I responded to the young man that uh, all of the dayanim that I've spoken to, that have reviewed the film, that have reviewed everything that we do, and that I've done with this film and many other things, actually, not only do they not think that uh, this is Chilul Hashem, they actually think you should learn more about what Chilul Hashem really is, because all we're doing is we're actually detailing a little bit of what actually is going to happen to anyone who doesn't do tshuva. And in fact, what we did is a microcosm of what reality is, meaning as graphic as the movie can possibly be even if it will be a hundred million times more graphic than what it actually is. And it's not really that gruesome of a movie, quite frankly. It's not like Chibuta Kedel. There's other things involved in there. But nonetheless, as much as somebody could use their imagination to make things as gruesome as possible, they say that I'm not even touching the surface on what reality really is if somebody does not do tshuva. So obviously, this is not Chilul Hashem, but rather the opposite. What about the other? Can such a movie about Gehenom, about the, uh, 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 the different sources that discuss Gehenom and prove Gehenom uh, you know, in, in such a fashion that only a deaf, blind, and stupid person uh, would simply not believe in Gehenom after watching that film? What about the source that uh, says that this could stop the next Holocaust? Well, there's also a source for that. Rav Avigdor Miller, Allah Shalom, and his uh, Sefer, Rejoice, O Youth. This is the first Sefer that I ever got from my dear Rav many years ago. And uh, Baruch Hashem, this uh, Sefer, Baruch Hashem, helped us understand a little bit more about what Judaism is. And uh, it's in essence a conversation between Rav Vigdor Miller and a young man with very, very elaborate questions. This is clearly not a normal young man. And uh, when the young man asks, uh, you know, why did God bring the Holocaust? Rav Vigdor Miller says that if you saw the people at the time, which he did, you would have seen that many people stopped believing in Gehenom. And therefore, Hashem had to bring Gehenom to this world in order for them to realize that it's real. So, as clear as it can be, we have a Torah giant telling us that uh, movies like this that are going to tell you about Gehenom, they're going to prove Gehenom to you, they're going to help you with your Yerat are in fact... The, uh, the cure for the ailment that the generation has. Now, of course, many people are going to fight it regardless of what we do. We're not, uh, uh, we're not delirious enough to think that this is not going to be uh, the, uh, without a fight or this is going to be the first uh, negative comment. But quite frankly, this is, we don't do things because of comments. We don't do things because of feedback. We do things because this is the will of Hashem and uh, Baruch Hashem, We've succeeded at doing so. And that's in essence one of the things that the Chazonish is now taking us on, this next chapter, this next exit on our spiritual tour to learn the Jewish ideology. This is actually what the Chazonish is discussing. In the fourth chapter, seventh section of the extraordinary sefer by the Chazonish, Emunah Bitachon. He now goes into the next exit, into the next section to teach us something extraordinary about Jewish ideology, what it really means to be a Jew, 
what does it uh, entail? Uh, you know, is it is it more than just observing Shabbat and putting on some uh, you know some more clothing? Is it uh, is it enough for me to go to heaven, or do I need to know more? Is it simple to be a simple Jew, or is it not? So the Chazonish says the following: After we have determined that the correction of one's traits is the foundation of the observance of both the commandments inconceivable to our intelligence and the commandments that are readily understood. This is meaning the mitzvot that are between man and his creator and versus those between man and man. Meaning that there are chukim, which are mitzvot that the Torah tells us that are beyond our logic. We really truly don't understand what is the logic behind them. And then there is the mitzvot that are relatively logical, even though the real reason behind all of the mitzvot is because God said so. Still, the key is to know that there is a method to fulfilling the Torah, to observing the mitzvot, and the method is you have the more you fix your character flaws, the more inclined you will become to fulfill the mitzvot. Okay, so it's one thing leads to another. You need to fix your, correct your flawed character traits in order to become more Torah observant. But at the same token, the more Torah observant a person is, the more inclined he is to fix his mitzvot, meaning that the two feed off of each other. And that's in essence what the Chazonish is saying here, is that after we determine that the correction of one's traits is the foundation of observance of both commandments inconceivable to our intelligence and commandments that are readily understood, we find that the practical tool one should use in order to correct one's traits is meticulous observance of halacha. Just like we said, that in essence, one needs to know that in order for you to become a better Jew, a better person, you have to fix your character traits. If you are easily angered, short-tempered person, you have to fix it immediately. In fact, the Rambam says that there are certain things that you have to be in the middle. You know, when it comes to generosity, don't be overly generous. At the same token, don't be overly stingy. Uh, when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, all types of different character traits, a person has to be in the middle, except when it comes to anger. When it comes to anger, a person has to be as far removed from anger as humanly possible. Now, of course, many people are naturally hot-tempered for whatever reason or another, whether it's because of the way they were brought up, because of their traditions, because of this, because of the spices, whatever the reason is, it doesn't really make much of a difference. A person that's easily angered has to remove this from their heart immediately. And as fast as possible, which again, when I say as fast as possible, I'm also well aware you can't stop being angry tomorrow just because you heard it in a video. Now, it, it's, but it's important for a person to know that being angry is not an excuse that's going to help you in Shemaim. Oh, I was angry, therefore I did this. It's not going to help you. In fact, it's an additional sin. So a person that's easily angered has to work on removing anger from their heart. I've already recommended a fantastic book that's well known by many Chachamim and Gdolei Adol that studied it called Remove Anger from Your Heart. Highly recommended for people to, uh, to learn. And again, review a million and a half times, perhaps until there literally is no anger in your heart. And I'm also saying this to myself and anybody else that ever has any anger in their heart. So anyone that has any character, tra uh, character trait flaw, 
whether it be anger in their heart or stinginess or arrogance or they simply they're not going to call you until you call them and that means you have arrogance or they simply are looking for all types of uh, kavod they want everyone to recognize how fantastic they are and they have issues with pride or they're simply not going to give until they literally see the person in front of them dying they're not going to give which means they have the the sickness and the disease of stinginess and all types of flaws a person needs to know that in order for you to become a servant of Hashem in order for you to become a decent human being you have to remove those flawed character traits although you are born with them or you develop them during your life this will not be a solid excuse that will help you when you go to the bet Dean of heaven okay no one can say to God listen I was angry therefore I did this I'm naturally a stingy person therefore I did that that is not going to help you were brought to the world in order to serve Hashem by fixing and uh, these flawed character traits and in essence what the Chazunish is telling us all of mankind in essence is that in order to serve Hashem the first thing we have to do is to remove these character traits but at the same token we've also learned thus far that the best way the best tool to actually fix these character traits is by a meticulous observance of the Torah and the mitzvot meaning that in order for you to observe the mitzvot perfectly you have to fix your traits but in order for you to fix the traits you already have to start observing the mitzvot why because observing the mitzvot will lead you to realize that you have flaws in your character how this is what he gets into for even though the practical mitzvot in their superficial form as they are seen among the masses are easy to perform they are very difficult for those who know the severity of Torah law and who have the love of Allah instilled in their hearts here the Chazonish gives us a atomic bomb of a statement to in so many words give us the extraordinarily the extraordinary ideological difference between a someone that is a ama'aretz ignoramus doesn't know anything even if this ignoramus observes shabbat eats kosher doesn't kill people doesn't eat pig you know basic person but doesn't learn Torah. Or when he learns it's once in a blue moon which is almost in essence the same thing as not learning Torah at all versus someone that learns Torah daily so here we're talking about two people two Jews both are observing Torah as far as they're not killing people they're observing Shabbat they're not eating not kosher and so on but there's a world of difference between the Ama'aretz's difference which is ignoramus difference versus the Talmud Chacham difference now Talmud Chacham doesn't necessarily need to be a Rav Ephraim Kachlon or Rishon Letzion or Rav Yaakov Zamir no Talmud Chacham is in essence in this in this particular uh, uh issue could be somebody literally that's just meticulous with their mitzvot and learns on a regular basis specifically when they learn Allah and how to observe the mitzvot so one person doesn't learn the other person does learn and the Chazoni says that this difference may not seem like a big deal but it's huge why he says because the 
masses, which is majority of people who are ignoramuses, as is well known, view the mitzvot as easy to perform. They look at it, what, Rabbi, what do I need to do? Keep Shabbat. Okay, so don't drive, don't play with my phone, eat, relax, go to shul. Yeah, no big deal. Sure, I'll keep Shabbat. I don't know why I didn't do it till now. Fine, I'll keep Shabbat. And to him, on day one, this is perfectly fine. In fact, this is miraculous that he's starting to keep Shabbat and that she's starting to keep Shabbat. She's not going to light fire anymore. She's not going to go to work anymore. She'll eat kosher food. She'll go to synagogue if, if necessary. Really, for women, it's not necessary for them to go to synagogue. It's better for the man to go to synagogue. But nonetheless, for the average person out there, even if they're not a Baal Tshuva, this is what Shabbat is to them. And therefore, when they say that all I need to do is just to keep Shabbat is this, fantastic. I'll keep it. And it seems to them easy in their eyes. But if you ask a Talmud Chacham, you ask a Torah scholar, you ask a learned person about Shabbat, you'll have quite a different answer. You'll have quite a different answer. Because the more a person knows about a mitzvah, the more difficult it becomes to him, says the Chazonish. How so? When it comes to Shabbat, the Amaretz thinks that as long as you don't drive, you don't, you don't uh, play with your phone, you go and eat, you go to shul, you're keeping Shabbat. But Talmud Chacham knows there's a lot more to Shabbat than just that. As soon as you say the word Shabbat to Talmud Chacham, immediately they say to you, 39 melachot. There are 39 restrictions. And there are endless amount of toladot. Things that are born from those things. Meaning, although there are 39 restrictions, there are many, many more things that stem from those 39 restrictions. And if a person doesn't know, then he doesn't even know how to keep Shabbat. For example, someone asked me just uh, last week a, about eating uh, um, pistachios and different nuts. Now I gave a very brief answer yes you're allowed there's no problem with it but quite frankly the answer should be much more elaborate than that if you were going to the books and if you're going to go into it extensively why because as the uh sefer ayin mishulash by an avrech from our generation says that the issues of borel separating are extensive and a person needs to know them why he says because the reason why he called his his sefer ayin meshulash is to as an acronym for the issues of borer of separating on Shabbat. Ochel yad lealtar. The first person needs to know that if you're going to eat anything and it has waste on it, let's say it has a peel, an orange peel, or the peel on uh, the shells on a uh, pistachio. Or anything like that you have to put some thought into eating it where you have to know that you have to take the good from the bad and not the bad from the good 
okay you have to take the good from the bad and not the bad from the good so for example if you have a box full of shells and there's one pistachio in there now if you take out the pistachio out no problem but if you say you know what let me empty out all these shells and i'll have my one pistachio left now you have a problem you just violated shabbat and you have an issue of boil so to take out the good from the bad that's the first step that you need to know second thing is it has to be done with your hand not with a tool don't remove the good the food from the uh from the bad with some type of tool do it with your hand so if you're opening the pistachio seeds with your hand no problem if you have some type of uh, machine to do it which i don't even know if it exists but nonetheless for the argument for for uh for this particular argument let's say there's a tool for it don't use the tool use your hand that's the second thing third it has to be done for now meaning let's say for example you have a free afternoon and you know that you have a bunch of company coming over and uh you don't want people to break their head opening the pistachios or the sunflower seeds or the oranges or whatever it is and you decide you know what let me just peel everything and prepare everything for everyone you have a problem why the preparation is supposed to be for now not for later so these three steps if a person doesn't know them they could easily be violating shabbat while they think they're keeping shabbat in fact they can be preparing a whole feast for the community five hours in advance saying you know what let me just do it early so i can have time to spend with my family and in reality they're violating shabbat so it's very important for a person to know these laws because if they don't they're violating shabbat and going up to heaven and saying oh i didn't know it's not gonna work why the mishnah in masechet avot says a person that doesn't know and makes accidental sins he didn't mean to do it on purpose but he doesn't know because he didn't learn on purpose that sin that was accidental turns into a purposeful sin so you see while the average person thinks oh it's no big deal keeping shabbat as long as i don't kill anybody as long as i don't drive a car as long as i don't watch tv i'm keeping shabbat well that may be what you think but there's a lot more to it the intricate details of each and every single law are an obligation for all of us not just for the torah scholars and each person needs to know these details now of course a fool will say listen i don't know what the blessing is for this thing i'll just say shakol shakol bishvilakol that shakol is for everything that as if hashem created everything so i'll say so hashem created everything including this so in essence they'll use the same blessing for everything this is a foolish person why because he thinks that he's doing god a favor with his blessing but in reality the blessing is for himself the blessing is to remind himself that god runs the world and god gave you the torah and if you simply make a blessing that is the wrong blessing because you care less you have a very serious problem and the Gemara Maseret Brachot says that if a person does not know the blessing, he's not allowed to eat. Go find a blessing. Yeah, but I'm hungry. Too bad you're hungry. You should have learned before. Now go learn. Figure out what the blessing is. 
and then eat. Now a person say, no, nah, come on, no, it's not, I don't think that God cares if I say shakol, or I say aretz, uh, or I say motzi, or I say this. God doesn't care, it's shakol, it's everything. That's a fool. Why? Because Akadosh Baruch Hu punishes measure for measure. Measure for measure. Now if you really think about it, if Akadosh Baruch Hu loves you, he's going to start giving you some of the punishment in this world, because the punishment in this world will actually help you do tshuva. Whereas the punishment in the next world is not going to help you do tshuva. There's no tshuva in Shemaim. There's no tshuva in Genom. That's what the Gemara says. The Reshaim, even in Genom, they don't do tshuva. Even at the, when they get to the gate, the gate of Genom, they don't do tshuva. It doesn't help them. Once they go inside the Genom, then everybody gets cleaned up. And But it's not tshuva. It's cleaning up the sins. It's cleaning up the spiritual filth. And trust me when I tell you after you see this film, Genom, you're not going to want to go to Genom for even a half a second. But a fool will ignore this and say, ah, shakol. And one day they can wake up and all of a sudden their perfectly healthy body all of a sudden can digest bread. And all of a sudden they have celiac or they have mal- malabsorption or they have some other disease that no one can recognize. And then, okay, fine, so I can't eat bread anymore. So I'll eat, uh, I'll eat uh, you know, fruits. And all of a sudden... They also have more stomach aches and more problems. And all of a sudden they have hives. What happened? I can't eat apples anymore. Doctor says, no, no more apples. Okay, what about bananas? No, no, they have, no, no more bananas either. Okay, so no bananas, no apples. Okay, so uh, all right, so let me see. What can I do? Ah, maybe I can eat some nuts. Nope, nuts, you're allergic. You'll probably die. Oh, what can I eat? You can eat this grain, this thing that some lab created and over there, oh, what's the blessing on it? Shekol. So the only thing you're left with is shekol. How about that? Would somebody like something like that? No. So remember, if you don't know the blessing, don't eat. Why? Because the blessing is important to you, not to God. It's for you to remember who God is. Not for God to remember who you are. He already knows. So the Chachamim, on the other hand, are as scared as can humanly as humanly possible from the smallest things and that's in essence what the chazoni says he says that the ones that are very very knowledgeable find it very difficult because they know the severity of the torah law and the law is ingrained into their heart the Gaomi Vilna, in a famous story, once, it's on Shabbat, he uh, didn't notice that there was an eggshell in front of him, and it, he touched it. The moment he touched this eggshell, somebody ate an egg, there's no egg left, there's just shell. He calculated, wait, if it's just shell, there's no egg connected to it, it's waste. If it's waste, it's mukze. If it's mukze, I just touched it. I just violated the law. He passed out on Shabbat. He passed out on the floor. No one knew what was going on. What happened here? They tried to wake up the Rav. Rav, you okay? You okay? He got up. He looked at the eggshell again. He passed out again. Now passing out two times already? Yeah, it's dangerous. His dear mother, who was also very knowledgeable as we hear from this story, she realized what happened with our son. 
She said, wait a second. She runs over there, wakes him up. As soon as he gets up, she takes the eggshell and puts it in her mouth and starts eating it to show her dear son that yes, there is an opinion that Beshata Dachak, when it's really necessary, eggshell can really be food. So it's not really Muktze. Even though you can find an endless a, a number of poskim that are going to tell you that even if you don't have to eat it, it's not Muktze. But the love of the law and thereby the knowledge of the law and the severity of the law that was ingrained into the heart of the Gaon Mivilna didn't allow him to accept any leniency whatsoever when it came to this eggshell. And when he realized that he might have violated the law according to somebody's opinion, one of the Gdolea Adol's opinions from previous generation, possibly, his heart couldn't fathom it and he passed out. Now, of course, some people would say, oh, this is fanatic. You think that the Gaomi Vilna is fanatic? Well, they call him a Gaon. What do they call you? I doubt it's Gaon. And if you call yourself a Gaon, it doesn't mean anything. Now, on another opportunity, another uh, uh, time frame, a few hundred years beforehand, was the giant Arizal. The Arizal doesn't need a bio for us to remind anyone who it is. Anyone that knows any aspect of the mystical aspects of Judaism knows and has heard the name Darizal. We did not comprehend any aspect of the Zohar Kadosh until Darizal elaborated and clarified it to the world. Now the Holy Arizal was an extraordinary Chacham, a giant among giants that many consider him the equivalent of like a Tana from 1500 years before him there's actually a, uh, a story I heard from Arab Meir Eliyahu that since Darizal would study regularly with Eliyahu Navi, Eliyahu Navi would come visit him and teach him Torah Darizal asked Eliyahu Navi to give him some of the water from Ber Miriam so it clarifies his mind that he would be able to elevate himself to even higher levels and that's what happened what the Arizal achieved in a few decades that he lived in this world is something incomprehensible if people would simply hear just a fraction of some of the stories of the things that he was able to do the things that he did to do anything any any part of the Arizal's life is simply incomprehensible that this holy Arizal one time without any uh, intention to go against any law or anything he just did what we anyone that has a beard does on a regular basis and just goes like this you know when you have a beard it's sometimes you play with it whether it's to help you think or it's to relax whatever the case is and when he did this on Shabbat his finger was in his beard and at that moment he realized wait if I pull my finger out if I pull my hand out there's a possibility that I'm gonna rip a hair out of my beard 
Now, although you can find an endless amount of chachamim and poskim and gdolim that will tell you, yes, even if there's a hair that comes out, you didn't mean it, you don't benefit out of it, it's not a problem, it's okay. Darizal simply could not deal with this. And for the rest of that Shabbat, he left his hand in his beard without moving an inch. He would go pray to Minyan with the hand in the beard, not shaking anybody's hand. He would learn Torah with the hand in the beard. Why? The love of the law and the understanding of the severity of the law didn't allow the Arizal to count on any leniency whatsoever. When it comes to something that the average person today goes like this, fixes themselves, puts some this, puts some that. If, if anything, they start brushing their hair, which is forbidden on Shabbat. Why? There's a difference between someone that knows the law and the severity of the law and someone that's unfortunately an ignoramus and thinks that the law is a uh, something like a, uh, you know, pick and choose, do whatever you want. Last but not least, another example is a, another story that I said some time ago about the Stipler Gaon. You know, many times people hear these names. They hear the Ariza, the Gaon Vilna, the Rav Wasserman, the Rambams, the, the, the uh, Rav Ovadia, all of these giants. And they think, oh, it's because they had a good memory. Oh, it's because they had a good father. Oh, it's because they grew up in a certain neighborhood. Oh, it's because of this. Oh, it's because of that. But in reality, it's because of these stories that they became giants. Because it says in the book of Deuteronomy, Parashat Ekev, chapter 7, verse number 12. Vaya Ekev Tishmeun. These are the, here these, the, the laws. And Rashi says on that Pasuk, that after you hear these laws, what is it referring after you hear these laws? Which laws? Rashi says, these are the laws that people view as simple, as easy. And thereby, violate them easily because they don't think of them as such a significant law a person is not measured by the big things that they do the big mitzvot that they do but rather by how they treat the small mitzvot because if you treat the big mitzvot very special you treat shabbat very special you treat the family purity very special very honored and so on that's fantastic but if the things like netilat yadayim are insignificant in your eyes if the things like saying thank you is or hello is insignificant in your eyes then surely you're not measured very highly in shemaim why because if you are looking at the small things as inconsequential then surely there is a problem with the big things you do as well so the great sages monitor their behavior so carefully that when they smallest things that we would view as small they viewed as the biggest things one of the people that knows about the stipler gaon he's a giant among giants his son was the uh Kanievsky, Shalom. he was a giant that get gave uh, birth to another giant which in itself is a uh is a miracle that's beyond comprehension because usually even though chachamim tend to have you know children that are good it's not common for one gdolador to have another gdolador in the family but nonetheless 
the uh, after learning an extraordinary amount of Torah and Musar from Novardok, the stipler Gaon became one of the Gdolei Ador. In his later years, he had problems with his leg, that there was a lot of accumulation of water, of, of, of fluid in his leg. After he passed away, his doctor said that uh, this fluid would accumulate to such an extent that they would literally have to take out four liters of liquid from his leg each week something that's unbelievable just a person could just imagine the amount of pain and agony that the stipler would have to go through now this of course made it difficult for him to walk but one shabbat the stipler gaon walks down the stairs to go to the synagogue and without noticing he stepped on the last step that had a puddle and his whole shoe goes into the puddle and unlike the rest of us ah i can't believe it ah let me just go change the shoes let me just go change the socks it's uncomfortable the thoughts of the stipend of were quite different i now have a sock that's soaking wet and if i step on it it's going to squeeze the water which is forbidden on shabbat now of course you can have an endless list of poskim that will tell you yeah but you don't mean it you don't benefit from it it's okay it's allowed it's not a problem especially since your other leg is the one that has all the liquid in it so it would be a massive amount of pain in your in your leg to to just walk on one leg none of this mattered to the state lagoon as he hopped on one foot up the stairs anyone that saw his house knows that the steep stairs for anybody needless to say for an older man he hopped up the stairs one step after another on a single leg then got into the house sat down while his leg is still in the air and left his leg up in the air for the rest of shabbat lest he take off the sock and the water gets squeezed anyway best not to touch it at all for the rest of shabbat why would you say that the stipler gaon didn't know what he was talking about would you say that he was a fanatic well the rest of the world says that he was the gdolado you don't become gdolado just because of having a good memory or a good last name so you see the more a person becomes knowledgeable about the law the more difficult it becomes in his eyes not because he's not enjoying it but rather because he realizes how many more details he needs to be careful of he needs to make sure to follow it's no different with anyone out there that would apply this to their day-to-day life when it comes to the issues of morality one of the subjects that we talk about often whether it's morality of a person doesn't lead themselves to waste seed or morality when it comes to for a person to be promiscuous with the, with other people the Gemara in Masechet Abu Dazara on page 20b says that 
uses a verse from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, uh, 23, verse 10. Venishmarta Preserve yourself from something evil. The Gemara elaborates, what does it mean, evil? Evil is referring to immorality that leads to Gainom. Why? Watch what you preserve yourself from something evil in the morning so you don't get to evil at night. What's evil? Immorality. Don't look at things that are inappropriate. Don't put yourself in inappropriate situations. If you look at something immodest, you watch TV, whether it be the news or it be sports or it be anything in movies, you're bound to see things that are immoral. The newscasters without arms and legs, the uh, different celebrities that show up on these shows, all of this immorality, all of this immodesty will have an impact on your mind. Needless to say, if you have roommates that are either the opposite gender or simply immoral people, you have those people in your life, it's going to lead you to immoral things. Now you're going to say, no, 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 but I keep myself, I don't touch myself, I don't touch anybody else, but it still happens when I go to sleep at night, I have all types of wicked dreams, those dreams lead to things. Guess what? Those dreams are your fault. And therefore, because you don't watch yourself during the day, from what's going to happen at night, you're going to end up with something evil. And therefore, even though you don't touch yourself, even though you don't touch anybody else, you are still at fault for what you put your eyes on. You're still at fault for who you befriend. You're still at fault with what you say. You use cuss words. use foul language. You, you, you do all types of things that are against the Torah. Even though they seem minuscule to you, they eventually lead to something major, and therefore that wasting seed at night is now counted as intentional. So a person could say, oh, that's too much. Okay, tell that to God when he judges you at some point after 120, see how that helps you. The reality is, Rabotai, is that the more a person knows, the more he understands, okay, so maybe I can be careful. It's not a matter of scaring people into becoming deer in headlights and just freezing and not doing anything. It's a matter of simply not using the ignorance as bliss excuse. We have minds, we have special souls, we have the ability to improve. And this is what in essence is expected of us. Now, the Chazonish continues and says the following. For the halachot are like a mountains hanging from a single hair. This is, he's quoting from the Gemara Masechet Chagiga, page 10b. Meaning that it's they that serve as the scales in determining the forbidden and the permitted, the kosher and the unfit. The rabbis prepared for us four tables. He's referring to the four parts of the Shulchan Aruch where the halachot are arranged in separate sections and articles, in Hebrew called seifim, the keeper of these tables, meaning the keeper of this shulchan aruch, and the observer of each mitzvah in all its myriad details, will often find himself needing to withstand immense trials. 
After he has labored much to find tefillin, satisfying all the strict requirements, and an etrog that is perfectly kosher, and a tzitzit that is perfectly kosher, a new doubt that he had not thought of before may arise in him, making all his efforts having been in vain. See here the Chazonish is already telling us it's not going to be easy to observe all of these mitzvot. In fact, it's going to be very challenging. Because the more observant you are, due to your knowledge, not due to just you wanting to be stringent on everything, even if you don't know what you're doing, because stringency does not lead to success. Sometimes stringency leads to death. As we see from the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 44a, where the stringency of Yeshua Benun led to the uh, death penalty of Achan, even though Achan was a crooked, wicked person that made every sin under the sun, what he eventually got caught for was something that really wasn't uh, wasn't a death penalty. And needless to say, ended up causing the death of soldiers during the war that they had. So stringency is not necessarily what is needed here, but rather knowledge of the law itself. And a person that keeps these tables, keeps these laws, will find themselves that they will have different tests. Now these tests come in all shapes and sizes. And these tests even come in the form of a mitzvah. A person finally buys themselves a pair of tefillin. The tefillin they got for their bar mitzvah is already 10, 20 years old. They realize that it's time for them to buy grown-up tefillin. They spend some money on it. And they go to some rabbi. They say, listen, rabbi, I just bought these tefillin, $1,500. What do you think of them? And with their bad luck, they fell on one of these wicked people that likes to make money off of ignorant people. And immediately, within two seconds of looking at tefillin, he already tells you, no, I think there's a problem. He doesn't really know what the problem is, but he decides there's a problem. Why? Because you don't know what a problem is and what it isn't. So he figures, let me just find something that looks like a problem. And I'll uh, tell you it's a problem, so to cause you to buy a whole new pair of tefillin, or maybe like this wicked guy that tells everybody that their retzuot, the, uh, the ropes, the, the, the straps, are, uh, are plastic. There's one guy that makes a whole business out of this. Everyone that goes there, oh no, your straps, I can already see from far that uh, it's plastic. It's made in China. Let me sell you real straps. Now, this guy thinks that maybe it's just making a little money, I'm giving them better straps, not a big deal. And even the consumer, the guy that comes over there, okay, you know what, he's giving better straps, what's the big deal? He doesn't realize. That illegal transaction, that unethical transaction, many times causes that person to lose faith and the rabbi that sold them that tefillin. Why? Oh, wait, I just bought this from the rabbi and... I listen to a shulim, or I go to a shul. Oh, he sold me. He sold me tefillin with straps from China. He sold me tefillin with bad straps. Ah, I'm not listening to him. I'm not gonna go to him anymore. I'm not gonna go to that synagogue anymore. And that's actually what happened a few times, where people would go to some wicked person. He would tell them, "Let's say, oh yeah, there's a problem with tefillin. What? It's not really square. Looks square to me. No, no, it's not square. Tashmasi, I'm doing this for thirty years. It's not square. It's rectangle." The guy doesn't know right or left. Okay, so how do I fix it? You can fix it with uh, only $1,200. Whoa, I bought it for $1,500. No, no, no. 
Those go to Gniza. We, we get rid of them. We can trade a new one. But don't worry, I got your discount. 1200 And the poor guy doesn't know right, left. All he knows, he wants to keep mitzvah. But unfortunately, when he got tested, then he failed the test. He went to the wrong person. So this happens. This happens. Sometimes a person will bite fleeing from the wrong places and surely they'll have problems. But always realize that the mitzvot, just because you're doing them, doesn't mean that they're always going to be smooth. You're going to have tests. You're going to have tests. Even if you get it from the right person, even if you get it from the right time and you pay the right price and everything is good, there will be tests. Somebody will look at it and say, listen, I see you have new pair of tefillin. Wow. Where'd you get them from? Oh, I got it from uh, Rabbi Reuven. Oh, how much you pay? 1600 he's ripping you off why 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 would you go? nah mine i got from the best guy in the world of worlds and it's it's not even jerusalem it's like the capital of jerusalem i got it from him it's the biggest mikubal on planet earth i got it for 800 and he wrote it over 87 years that he's alive he's been writing it since he was born and uh he got it from darizal and he gave it to me for only 800 so he's ripping you off clearly obviously this is a test why is test number one only an idiot will believe people like this and they make up all types of things that their rabbi and wherever they got that feeling from is the biggest and the best and all the other mumbo jumbo they don't even know what biggest and the best is but they simply say it number two you have to know where you get your feeling and you have to rely on a source and you have to understand that you're not buying feeling because of price you're buying feeling because of quality What's quality? You can't tell the quality. You're not an expert in tefillin. Tefillin have over a thousand halachot. Many of them are Moshe Misinai. So to, to know all the halachot takes a long time. So you don't know what's good, bad, indifferent. In essence, what you have to do is you have to rely on the person that's selling you tefillin. Whether it's me, or it's your rabbi, or it's somebody else, you have to rely. Are these people that are selling me the tefillin people that have yirat shamayim? Because if they do, then I can rely on whatever they say. But if they don't, What's to say that they're not selling me some uh, toy they bought at Toys R Us and they put a piece of paper in it, even and, and you know they t- painted it black and it uh, looks like it's a uh, tefillin. What's to say that this is really tefillin? What's to say? Oh, and you say yeah, but I just want to save some money. Oh, if you're looking to save money with mitzvot, you're in the wrong religion. Why? The key is to understand the better the mitzvah. Typically, it goes with the price too. Doesn't necessarily always mean that the most uh, the best mitzvah is the most expensive. But generally speaking, they are related to a certain extent. So a person needs to know that if you're going to ask someone that has Yirat Shamayim, they're going to tell you what is the truth. If you're going to ask somebody that they have Yirat money, their fear of money, fear of popularity, fear of being right all the time, fear of missing out, fear of a lot of other things, but not fear of heaven, then certainly you're asking the wrong place. So never make a transaction when it comes to Torah and mitzvot and stakai and things of that nature when it comes to uh, because of money. It has to be because of who you ask and that person has to have Yirat Shamayim. So now a person made this mitzvah of tefillin or perhaps he made a mitzvah buying an etrog. Now you would think, well, I bought an etrog. What's the problem with buying an etrog? I can tell you from personal experience. I've been living, living in Florida for I think now eight, nine years eight nine years i've been living in florida i've paid as much as five hundred dollars for an etrog five hundred dollars for an etrog i whatever hashem gives me i designate for mitzvot 
when I go buy an etrog or th- different things related to mitzvot, I simply say, give me the best you possibly have, whatever it costs. If I have the money, I'll pay for it. If I don't have the money, then, you know, I have to figure out what to do. Go get the money, work more, I don't know, do something and pray to Hashem for Hashem to, to give me a miracle to get the money. But nonetheless, the price is insignificant. Quality is most, more important to me. So I've had etrogim from different places here in Florida for the last eight years, different people. Eight years, every single year, Baruch Hashem, lately I've been buying multiple etrogim because of this issue. Every year, most of the etrogim that I have are lemons. They're not really etrogim. And one time, last year, not this past year, the year before, one uh, young guy advertised that he's selling the best etrogim in the world, and the planet, and you know, they came from Mars or something, wherever they came, he has a togim, $500, special class, special this, special that, no problem. Give me. I bought two. Not because I have extra money to waste, simply because in case something happens, you have kids, it falls, it breaks, whatever it is. Akadosh Baruch provides. Got these two by a miracle. Mamasha miracle. Hashem had mercy on me because this is like one of the mitzvot that's like my favorite mitzvah. I love Sukkot. And... The etrog is like my favorite thing. I don't know why, since the beginning, it's always been special to me. I remember, I think I told you guys the story years ago when I uh, first started out. I lost everything and I had one, you know, last bit of money left. I think it was like six, seven hundred dollars. And it was Sukkot. I went to buy a trogim for my family and I was going to buy for myself. And I bought a six hundred dollar etrog. Pretty much gave all of the money that I had left on this one etrog. That is the most beautiful etrog in the world. It was miraculous. It lasted for a couple of years. A story of itself. Nonetheless, every year I tried to do whatever I can to get the best possible etrog. Mamash, a miracle. That year I didn't know where I was going to get the etrog. This guy popped up. I bought two etrogim from him. A thousand bucks for etrogim. And then of course I bought for, for, for my kids also cheaper ones. And Baruch Hashem, we have etrogim. By a miracle, last minute, Mamash, the day before the Chag, or the day of like the evening, one of my uh, uh, dear students from Canada sends that deals with a togim from morocco sends me an etrog and it actually reaches last minute so of course you have this etrog it's a gift it's, it was beautiful i'm gonna use this one yeah but what about the thousand dollars you just spent on these other two thousand thousand whatever it's gonna let it give him panasa what do i care for he got panasa fine but having a etrog you know what happened at the end of sukkot at the end of sukkot I opened the etrogim. The $500 etrogim, both of them are lemons. Meaning I could have been going, ah, I have a lemon. What happened? That's what they sell. So a person can do whatever they want to do. They're going to be tested. They're going to be tested. You're going to be tested. How do you help yourself when all these things can happen, sacrifice everything for the sake of the mitzvah, show Hashem you love the mitzvah, and Hashem will protect you from it. Just like Hashem, the story that I just told you, if it wasn't for that miraculous etrog that I got last minute, I wouldn't have fulfilled the entire mitzvah for the whole holiday. So this Rabotai is what the Chazonish is telling us here. 
You bought tefillin, satisfying all the strict requirements. You bought an etrog, satisfying the perfect, looks perfectly kosher. All of a sudden you discover there's a little black dot. Oh, does it postulate? Does it not postulate? Is it still okay? Is it on the upper uh, 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 section of the etrog? Therefore it cancels it. Or is it really in the middle? It's not a really big deal. Does it take away from the etrog? Do you even know all the laws? Or it's just like, listen, it's an etrog. I bought it for 50 bucks. What's the big deal? If you're one of those people, what's the big deal? Let me just get the cheapest thing you have. Then surely you are clueless at how few mitzvot you actually end up keeping. Because most of the time, if you don't know the law, you're not able to observe the law. Or a person will say, listen, I just bought a tzitzit, nice tzitzit, ordered it from Eretz Yisrael, ordered it from here, ordered it from there, but then all of a sudden it arrives, wait a minute, where did I order it from? I ordered it from some company. Wait, is this even a Jewish company? Oh, time in a Jewish company so how how could I be sure wait if it's not a Jewish company who made this tzitzit so if they made a tzitzit and it's not a Jewish company and even know this and even know that yeah but you're supposed to have the the kavanah when you put in the tzitzit that it's for shamayim it's the, oh, oh all of a sudden you have all these doubts the more you know about the law the more questions you're gonna have like some people they go to all types of places judaica stores they buy whatever they buy this they buy that and then they leave the store and they, wait a minute hold on a second the guy that owns the store that sold me all these different things i just saw him driving on shabbat should i just do i still what eh? Eh? you're gonna have a bunch of holy things from a person that drives on shabbat so these are the things that happen says the chazonish so what does this all what does this all have to do with the uh with with the, the midot what is this this is the law what does it have to do with the character traits so he says in such a case a person now has to wage a war on his bad traits on his bad traits why does he have to wage a war on his bad traits sometimes the trait of laziness when he's already overly tired sometimes it's connected with being shamed before other people sometimes he stands to suffer monetary loss and sometimes his family members are going to tease him and so on there could be thousands of such difficulties and in general for a person who is being particular about mitzvah observance the main challenge is is in standing alone and he needs courage not to be swayed by his environment the chazoni sums it all up and tells us the following the tests are coming in fact the more knowledgeable you become about torah the more you're going to have different tests and it's only your character development and your perfection of your character traits that's going to help you overcome those tests why because you spend a thousand dollars on an etrog you spent five hundred dollars on this you spent extra amount on that you bought this from this place but now you know you have to return it are you going to be lazy or cheap and not do it if you're still lazy if you're still stingy if you're still arrogant and know it all then you're not going to pass the test you're going to say ah no it's no big deal and you're going to keep the bad atrog you're going to keep the bad feeling you're going to keep this and you're going to keep that and you're going to keep the sins in your hand and not on the mitzvot this is the reason why the chazoni started the section by saying that this is why fixing the midot is needed in order to keep halacha and keeping halacha is needed in order to fix the midot because if you fixed your midot 
when the test comes from observing the halacha, now that you know more, that stronger character trait will allow you to pass the test and observe that halacha despite the test, despite tiredness, laziness, stinginess, arrogance, and whatever other flawed character trait you had before you fixed it. On the other hand, if it wasn't for that halacha, you wouldn't know that you actually fixed that character trait. Because you can say, wait, I used to be lazy, but I'm not lazy anymore. How do you know? I used to be arrogant, but I'm not arrogant anymore. How do you know? I used to be uh, stingy. I used to be this, but I'm not anymore. How do you know? Oh, you don't know until you get tested. And what's the best place to get tested? With the mitzvot themselves. With the mitzvot themselves, Abutai. Now, a person sees that, wait a minute. These laws that the Chachamim are telling us about are all in the Shulchan Aruch, they're all obligations. Let's say I try to keep to the best of my ability, but I don't have time to study all the time. I'll watch a shiur occasionally. I'll read a book occasionally. Does God really care that much? Well, let's see. You see, in the Holy Torah, everything that you can possibly want is in it. In this week's parasha, we have Avraham Avinu dealing with Ephron. Ephron originally offered the Me'arat HaMachpelah for free. And later on, he wanted not only a lot of money for it, but a overcharged for it. And the Torah symbolizes this by changing his name, the spelling of his name, by removing one of his letters. Symbolic of a wicked person who says a lot but does little. So this bad character trait of talking a big game but doing little is something that noticed by the Torah. In the world of Torah, there are sometimes people that not only they talk a lot, but they talk so much that the second you don't do what they want you to do, they get to show you their real colors that you never wanted to see. And they curse you. Now, the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, page 49a, says one of the ways that a person can not only perfect their character traits by having them tested, but also put themselves in a situation where they're protecting themselves from evil, is by letting themselves be the one that is cursed and not being the one that curses. Somebody cursed you? Quiet. Now this does not come to most people naturally. Somebody cursed you. You cursed them back. In fact, you could give 15 different sources. Say, wait, it doesn't say somebody tries to kill you, you kill them first. Yes, cursing is not trying to kill you actually, but nonetheless, it's interesting comparison. But if a person says, wait a minute, why should I let this guy curse me? Why should I let this girl curse me? And not only let them curse me, 
but stay quiet and be happy about it? Say thank you to Hashem? How could it be? Rav Steinemann, Allah Shalom, one time came to the United States to give chizuk to people. And in one of the events, there was many, many people. And Rav Steinemann is on the stage. People are all excited, but they see there's somebody next to the stage. It looks like he's talking to the rabbi, but they don't know what he's saying. As people get closer and closer, they see that Rav Steinemann is smiling. So, oh, what, I must be saying something nice. They get closer and closer, and they start hearing this guy is berating the rabbi, cursing him out. And of course, they remove him from where he is to get him out of the place. But it was already a couple of minutes of curses and, and, and the insults by this wicked person. But yet they didn't understand, why is the rabbi smiling? Why is the rabbi smiling? The next day, the rabbi was happier than usual. And he sees that his students are still, you know, they're looking, they're trying to figure out how to ask the rabbi about this. He says to them, I had a big merit yesterday. What, Kodav? Akadosh Baruch Hu sent me somebody to insult me, to curse me, Baruch Hashem. Why? Why Baruch Hashem? He says, because Akadosh Baruch Hu had mercy on me, he saw how much honor people are giving me, how much kabod they're giving me, it's going to take away from my Olam Abba. So he sent me somebody to berate me, sent me somebody to curse me out. So Baruch Hashem, Hashem, Hashem took care of that. This is the right mindset. Are we there? Obviously, we're far away from there. But nonetheless, Tzadikim lived there. They lived in this magic land. They lived in this extraordinary land where being berated was something they welcomed. And the Gemara says, it's not only something you should welcome, but in fact, you should be happy about it. And you're actually protecting yourself by doing so. Why? Because the Rashi says, it's more dangerous to be someone who curses others than someone who himself is cursed. Because the person that curses without having a justifiable cause is destined to backfire against that very same person who said it. Meaning if you're cursing somebody who doesn't deserve it, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get a little present from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, a little present in a box with a bow, and it has your name on it, and it's your curse you created on yourself. That's what the Gemara says. You want to be smart? Not only you should be like Abstinemann and accept these curses because it's something that will negate any honor that you got that's taking away from your Olamaba. But even more so, it protects you, this curse. It protects you. Why? If you don't deserve the curse, you're in a great shape because the curse is not going to go on you. It's going to go on them. So you don't have to worry about the curse. Like some people ask me, listen, this lady, this wicked lady, she uh, was upset with us and she cursed us and she this. Should I be worried? No, if you, are, if you have, no, have no reason to curse you, you're not a wicked person. Not only should be, shouldn't be worried, you should be happy. Why? Because if she's really wicked, she's going to get that curse on her head. She's going to get what she dished out. So by being the one that's cursed, you're protected. Not the one that curses. 
So here we see one small example of what someone that would learn Torah would do with something that a person that doesn't learn Torah would not do. But there's also a clear difference between someone that is a Torah scholar versus someone that's not a Torah scholar. And although this is not going to be a popular segment of the shul or of anybody's life, it's certainly necessary for us to learn how does the Torah treat the Jew that is a Torah scholar versus someone that's an Amaretz, an ignoramus. When it comes to life. Now, for all intents and purposes, when we're referring to an ignoramus, we're referring to somebody that is not careful with the law, doesn't care about it. You know, one of these people that drives in last minute before Shabbat starts every week. Sometimes he'll even take a shower 15, 20 minutes, a half hour into Shabbat. Sometimes he'll even take a shower on Shabbat. Sometimes he'll eat something without knowing whether it's kosher or not. Sometimes he'll do business without knowing if it's allowed or not. You know, people that are not careful with the law. We're not talking about a completely secular person that ignores the law because that person certainly is not in the argument. That person has a very, very serious detrimental problem already that's much bigger than just being careful with the law. He doesn't keep anything. We're talking about somebody that is actually observant of some of the laws but is not careful with them. To the point where it's like not as important to him as his Amazon business. It's not as important to him as his stock business. It's not as important to him as his girlfriend. It's not as important to him as his dog. It's something you do because you're in a Jewish community. The Gemara says the following. Masechet Psachim. Tanu Rabbanan le'olam yimkor adam kol ma sheyesh lo ve'isa bat talmit chacham. שימת אוגולה מופתח לו שבנב תלמידי חכמים ואל יישא בת עם הארץ שימת אוגולה בנב עמי הארץ says rule of thumb you should know a man should always be prepared to sell everything he owns so that he can marry the daughter of a Torah scholar for then, even if he dies or is exiled, or in today's world, as is very common, if he gets divorced and is unable to raise his children, he is assured that his sons will become Torah scholars. Why? Because if he married a daughter of a Torah scholar, she's going to raise the kids like she saw in her own house growing up, like our father. And one should not marry the daughter of an Amaaretz. For if he dies or is exiled, or as I said, gets divorced, his children will become Amaaretzot. If you marry a very, very pretty girl, a very rich girl, but her father's an Amaaretz, doesn't care about mitzvot, and neither does she, guess what? The first time you have a fight and she doesn't want you to be in a house anymore, the first time there's even signs of divorce, or there's chas v'shalom, any extended trip, or something changes in life, that you're not able to raise your kids, guess what? Even though you worked really hard to put those kids in yeshiva, those kids are leaving yeshiva. 
they're leaving the seminary. Why? Because they don't care about Torah. They don't care about Torah. The only reason they kept them in the Torah world was because of you. The second you're not in the picture, guess what? Those kids are also leaving the Torah. And that's unfortunately what happens many times when guys marry the wrong girls. Guys marry the wrong girls. Now, it's important to know that Chachamim are well aware that it's not always possible for a person to marry the daughter of a Torah scholar. But a person needs to exert all effort to try to marry a daughter of a Torah scholar. That's why they say he should be prepared to sell everything he has if that's what it's going to take for him to marry a daughter of a Torah scholar. If it's not possible, there are choices. There are other choices. What are these other choices? Let's see. Wait till you hear what this means. The sages taught us, Gemara Masechet Psachim, page 49b. A man should always be prepared to sell all that he owns so that he can marry the daughter of a Torah scholar. If he cannot find the daughter of a Torah scholar, and by he, he can find, not that she doesn't exist, simply he either can't afford her, doesn't have enough money, or he, uh, the, the, the father, the Torah scholar, is not willing to let his daughter marry you, either you're not Torah scholar enough yourself, or whatever the reason is. Bottom line is, doesn't succeed. What's the second option? He should marry the daughter of one of the great people of the generation. Meaning one of the really, one of the leaders of the generation, one of the successful people, people that are well-to-do, big Baal Chesed. Try to marry one of those people. If it's not possible for him to find a daughter of the, one of the great people, he should marry one of the daughters of the community leaders, one of the heads of the Bet Knesset. If he cannot find the daughter of one of the community leaders, he should marry the daughter of the charity collectors, one of the people that's in charge of charity, because those people usually have good midot. They're usually very humble people, very honest people. If they're not honest, obviously run away from them. If he cannot find the daughter of one of the charity collectors, he should marry the daughter of one of the school teachers. Why? If a father or mother, they're school teachers, usually they taught her how to, how to raise kids good. How to raise kids good. So they teach him how Aleph Bet, Gimel Dalet, Moshe Kibet Torah Misinai, all the basics that she's going to learn how to raise kids too. So marry her too. That's fine. That's fine. Either way though, he should not marry the daughter of an Ama Aretz because the Ama Aretz are vermin and their wives are insects. And regarding their daughters, it said the verse in... Um, the verse is in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 21, 27, 21. 
Arur shochev im kol behemah. About their daughters, it says, accursed is the one that lies with a behemah, an animal. That's the attitude of the sages towards Amearatzot. Why is it so horrible? Now you would think, okay, but this is just the sages, maybe they exaggerate a little bit, that they don't really mean it. Let's see. Remember I always tell you, Midrash, Gemara, it's not always necessarily Alakha, it's always very important. But once it's Alakha, all arguments are off the table. This is what it is. Shulchan Aruch, Even Ezer, Ilchot Priya Urviya, Siman Bet, Alakha, Vav, 2 6. It quotes the same exact Gemara that I just gave you. And then the Rama says that after the uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo finishes with the end of that Gemara that says that he should never marry the daughter of an Ama Aretz, the Rama says the rest of the Gemara as if it's a Paskin's it Alacha. It says, he says, because on their daughters, the daughters of the Ama Aretz are considered Be'emah. And this is referring to an Ama Aretz that is not careful with mitzvot. Now the question is, why are they so harsh on this Ama Aretz to the point where they're calling this, for all intents and purposes, Shomer Shabbat Jew. He's not, we're not talking about a secular person. We're not talking about an idol worshiper. We're not talking about somebody that drives on Shabbat. We're talking about a person that is simply not careful with their mitzvot. He works an extra 15 minutes into Shabbat sometimes by accident, by on purpose, on a regular basis. He'll eat something that you're not really sure if it's kosher or not. He'll make fun of the sages here and there. He'll discount a shiur Torah. If it makes people laugh, you know, things like that. Why are the, the Chachamim turning this guy into the worst thing on earth? Where he is vermin. His wife is insect. And his daughter is a behemah. Why? Why? Says the Taz. Daughter of an Amaritz. Is not someone you should ever marry. Why? She learned from her parents. That the reason why you don't invest that time into learning Torah and instead you invest it running business is because these guys that learn Torah, all this Torah is not going to help them in this world. Whatever reward that God's going to give them, we're not discounting it. But it's not for this world, it's for the next world. In order for you to live a good life here, and have parnasah here, and to have good here, you have to work more in business. So this girl learned this from our father, that that's the reason why he doesn't learn Torah. And the mother says, yes, how do you think I afford this jewelry? How do you think I have a brand new beamer every year? How do you think we afford this house? Abba works, Ima works, everybody works. Don't uh, make it this Torah such a big deal. Your husband says he wants to learn. Learn after you finish working. Learn after you finish running the business. So this daughter of the vermin and 
this daughter of the insect turns into a behemah. Why she's a behemah? Huh? Because, Abutai, just like the behemah thinks that just this world is all that there is. Benefit from this world, from the material of this world. That's what this young girl thinks also. And the Taz says, the daughter of this Amaaretz is likely to believe that studying Torah is rewarded only in Olamaba and not in this world. And she might therefore prevent our husband from studying Torah and encourage him to engage, engage in commerce so that they will enjoy the pleasures of this world. And this belief is obviously mistaken. As Rashi teaches us that the Torah enhances your life, life in this world and life in the next world. And the Amaretz is now a problem. But from here we also learn, says the Taz, that really the root of the problem is not that he is ignorant in Torah. It's not that the mom is ignorant in Torah, but rather their attitude towards Torah. That they don't think that Torah is going to reward you in this world. And therefore the Taz and other Chachamim say that if someone finds the daughter of an Amaretz, and some say even a secular person who does appreciate the studying of Torah and knows that studying Torah will reward you in this world, there is no objection, there's no problem in marrying that daughter of the Amaretz. Meaning that the root of the problem is not that he lacks knowledge. The root of the problem is why he lacks knowledge. If he lacks knowledge and he's not careful with mitzvot because he thinks that the only way he's going to buy the million dollar house is if he works overtime and he doesn't have time to learn Torah and that's what he's going to teach his little daughter. You can't marry that girl. Why? She knows that. She thinks that. She's going to tell you, listen, you can't learn Torah. You have to go work. I want to build a $2 million house. My parents have $1 million, I want $2 million. But if his daughter, she has fear of heaven, she loves Torah, she says, I want you to learn Torah at least a few hours every single day. In fact, I want you to be an avrech. I want you, if you want to work, no problem, but I want you to learn several hours a day. I'll take care of the kids. I'll take care of the house. You go learn three, four, five, six, seven, eighty-seven 87 hours every day. I want you to learn. Why? That makes me happy. She's like that. Go ahead and marry. It doesn't matter who, if her, her father's Haman. If her father could be Haman. You can marry her. Why? She's tzaddikah. But if she has the same ideology as her, as her father, run away. Run away. Now, the Gemara continues and says, in the name of Rabbi Kadosh. Rabbi says, Amaaretz asur lechol basar beema. And Amaaretz is forbidden from eating meat. For it's stated in the Torah, Zot Torah ta beema ve'aof. This is the Torah, meaning the Torah, the, the law of the animal and the bird. And the verse teaches us, Kol ha'osek b'Torah mutar lechol basar beema ve'aof. This verse teaches us from a Torah this, uh, that whoever occupies himself with studying of Torah is allowed to eat the meat 
of an animal or bird. But anyone who is not occupied with the studying of Torah is forbidden from eating meat of an animal of a bird. Now some say, in the name of the Marsha, it's because if he doesn't learn Torah and he just prepared you a meal, how do you know it's kosher? Well, he bought the meat from kosher food, from kosher market. Okay, he bought the food from kosher market, but if he doesn't learn Torah, how does he know that he's not allowed to put certain ingredients in there? How do you know there's not dairy in there? How do you know there's not fish in there? How do you know all the other ingredients are kosher? If he does not know the law, you can't eat his meat. You can't eat his food. You cannot eat his food. Needless to say, if he's Mechal Shabbat, you can't eat his food. But even if he's Amaharetz, you can't rely on his food. But some say even more. Some say, in the name of the Maharal, the Gemara is literally teaching us that when a person, when a Jew forsakes Torah study, he has now become inferior to the animal. And therefore, he's not allowed to eat it. Why? Because the animal, the behemah, is fulfilling God's will. It's being a behemah. It's being an animal. But he, that he's forsaken the Torah, he's not fulfilling God's will, so therefore he's not superior to it. Now there's a write-up from about five, six years ago, yeah, 5778, by Tomit Chacham, Rav Pinchas Noach. And he brings some interesting things about the word Be'emah. And he says, the Orach Haim HaKadosh taught us that when a person, when he makes a sin, he descends from the status of being, from being Adam to being a Be'emah. Jews are called Adam. But when he makes a sin, he loses that status and he becomes a Be'emah until he does Tshuva. This is why the Marsha says that in the name of the uh, Gemara, Masechet Shabbat, it talks about how wild animals only prevail over man that resembles a behemah. The Marsha says this is because the wild animals fear man when he looks to them like a man because they could see things that we can't see. They could see the aura. They could see the image of what a man really is, what a righteous person really looks like. But when this aura looks like the aura of an animal, of a behemah, looks like prey to them. So they'll attack. Who are they going to attack? They're going to attack the person that's a amaretz, that's a secular person, that's a, against the Torah. They're not going to attack the righteous people. This is why the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin and many other places, there are different stories, the Or Chaim HaKadosh, Daniel, these are people that were thrown into a place full of lions lions that were starving and those lions were too scared to even uh to even uh, roar at them multiple times different chachamim were thrown into a cage full of lions and different animals and the animals were scared of them and this is not like one or two or three stories there are literally dozens of stories of different holy chachamim that showed the world how holy they are without doing a thing the world of wicked people thought they were punishing them by throwing them to be 
food for the animals, only to realize that the animals are too scared to even roar at these holy people. Now, Darizal says also, it's mentioned in this write-up, that one of the things that we have to do at the time of the Bet Mikdash is bring korbanot, bring sacrifices. If you made an accidental sin, you violated Shabbat accidentally, not on purpose. If it's on purpose and there's two witnesses and they warn you and you still do it, death penalty. Go, Sanhedrin, they uh, ask the uh, witnesses a series of questions, they confirm everything, everything is confirmed, okay, they take this guy and they give him the worst death penalty in the Torah. As the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 49 says, there are four different death penalties. There's the stoning, there's the burning, there's the beheading, and then there's the strangulation. Which one's the worst? The whole sugya talks about which one is the worst. This is a debate between the sages and uh, uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Long story short, stoning is the worst death that possibly is. Mechalel Shabbat, idol worshiper, blasphemer, they get the stoning. Stoning, death penalty. Throw him off of a two-story building, throw a boulder on him, more rocks, horrible, horrible thing. Now, that's on purpose. If he did it accidentally, there's no stoning, accidentally violated Shabbat, accidentally did something that's not allowed, you have to bring a korban, bring an animal. So people always ask, what does the animal do that deserves this uh, this death? The time of Eliyahu Navi, when Eliyahu Navi was fighting all of the Nevi'e Baal, the false prophets. Eliyahu Navi versus 450 false prophets. The 450 false prophets bring their sacrifice and no fire, no nothing, it doesn't work. Eliyahu Navi makes fun of them and start in front of all of Am Yisrael. Then Eliyahu Navi brings his two cows and a cow starts talking to Eliyahu Navi. Why do I have to do it? How come I have to be a sacrifice for these wicked people? I don't want to be. He's like, it's not fair. Eliyahu Navi says, don't worry. Hashem's name will be sanctified even more from you than from your brother. It was twin cows. Talking to Eliyahu Navi. Now, this cow and any other cow or, or, or korban that was brought at the Bet HaMikdash, it's not leaving alive. It's going to be slaughtered. It's going to be killed. Why? Now, I understand you could say, yeah, but the animals were created to serve man, and you're right. But the same token, this is a world of justice. HaKadosh Baruch Hu runs the world with justice. It's not uh, justice and mercy. It's not just, okay, the animal is just an animal. No, no, the animal is also a creature. Why does the animal deserve to, be, to die because he made an accidental sin? Says the Arizal. At that moment, HaKadosh Baruch Hu makes sure that the cow, whatever other animal that's brought to be a sacrifice, has the neshama of a person that made the same exact sin and did not repent for it. And therefore, through the sacrifice, both the person that brought the sacrifice and the animal itself that is the sacrifice repent for that sin. 
And therefore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu brings His mercy in different ways. That's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu told you bring the Be'ema. Not because the Be'ema is just a Be'ema, but because the Be'ema has a Neshama in it that needs to do Tshuva. Needs to do Tshuva. Now, the Rav, Rav Friedman, elaborates further and he says, Noach was in the Teva for 12 months. And really it was a punishment on Noach. It's a punishment on Noach. Why? Because for 12 months, he has to be cleaning the fecal matter, the excrement of all of these animals. And he couldn't sleep. He couldn't rest all day. He's either feeding them or cleaning their excrement. And he cried to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, please, I'm tired of the stench of the lions, of the bears, of the, the, the tigers. Get me out of here. So what's the significance of 12 months? Bahama Sechet Shabbat says, wicked people go to Gainom for 12 months. And many of the wicked, real wicked people of our generation that distort the Torah says, oh, see, wicked people maximum send us 12 months. No, Habibi. If you look at the Gemara, you go to Masechet Chagiga, and it talks about what is a real wicked person at the end of the Gemara. The wicked person that they're referring to is not a wicked person that's Mechalel Shabbat, driving on Shabbat, stealing from people, charging them interest of 80%. That's not the wicked person that the Gemara is referring to. It's only 12 months. Those people are Reshaim Murim that have no share of the world to come. We're talking, when they're referring to wicked people, it's people that have a few sins, but they're still righteous. But they still have, according to the law, they still have a few mistakes. What's an example? Noach. Noach ish tzaddik tamim. Noach was tzaddik. Noach was tzaddik. But when he, when he was in a teva, HaKadosh Baruch Hu judged him like he was wicked a little bit. Why? Because Noach did not rebuke his generation. He was too soft on them. If they came to him, he would tell them, listen, you should do, you know, that's why I'm building a teva, you should do tshuva. He didn't go after them. He didn't give them hard musal. He didn't give them full truth. That's what the Chachamim say. He was too soft on them. That was his disposition. That's why when he had to be reincarnated as Moshe Rabbeinu many years later, and Moshe Rabbeinu talks to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for a whole week, don't use me as the messenger. I'm not a good speaker and I wasn't yesterday or the day before. Says Dariza, wasn't, what do you mean he wasn't a good speaker yesterday or the day before? If he's not a good speaker now, surely he wasn't yesterday or the day before. Ariza says that's what he means. In his previous carnation or the carnation before that, when he was Noach, when Moshe Rabbeinu was Noach, he wasn't a good speaker even back then. So now you're going to tell me, oh, I want you to do, why? Because you have to do your tikkun. This is your tikkun. This is your tikkun. You have to go rebuke Am Yisrael. That's what the Gemara, Masechet Megillah, says HaKadosh Baruch Hu cried when Moshe Rabbeinu left this world. He took him out of this world. Why are you crying? Who is going to rebuke my people like Moshe Rabbeinu? That completed his tikkun to perfection. But Noah had to stay in the teva for 12 months. Why 12 months? Why not 13? Why not 10? Why not 5? Why not 17? Why not 50 years? Why? Because 12 months is for these types of reshaim. They're not real reshaim. The reshaim in the standards of the tzaddikim. They have a few sins they have to clean up. You didn't rebuke. You did ah, half a job. Okay, you have to suffer for, for a year. A year you have to clean up these animals. And then eventually you have to bring some of these animals as sacrifices. You kept them for a year just to kill them. Why? Because some of the neshamot have to reincarnate in these korbanot, have to reincarnate in these animals. So they could fix which neshamot, the neshamot of the good ones. Of the good ones. 
So you see, Rabotai, if a person looks at the words of the sages and sees beauty in there and says, this is the greatest gift that could ever be, and surely studying it in itself is a reward, certainly HaKadosh Baruch will provide when I study His Torah more than just my intellectual stimulation, spiritual elevation, surely you'll always give me Panasai as well, then you're in the right path. If you found somebody that wants to marry, that's also in the same mindset, by all means, they're also in the right path. But if you found somebody that doesn't think like that, you found somebody that thinks, no, no, in order for you to make money, you have to go work. You have to be in commerce. And if you have to choose between commerce or learning Torah, you have to go commerce first. That's priority in life because we have to buy a big house. We have to get a car. We have to do this. That's a person you should not marry. In fact, the Gemara says it's forbidden for marrying them. Why? They're bema. You'll be marrying an animal and being intimate with an animal. And in fact, Rabotai Karim, for those of you that, has, that have daughters, you should know you're forbidden from allowing your daughter to marry an Amaritz. Why? The Gemara continues on page 49b and says the following. In the name of Rabbi Meir Balanes, Kola Messi, Bito Le'ama Aretz, Keilu Kofta, Umanicha Lifne Ari, Uma Ari Dores Veochel, Ven Lo Boshet Panim, Af Ama Aretz Makeu Boel, Ven Lo Boshet Panim. It says, Rabbi Meir Balanes, Anyone who marries off his daughter to an Ama Aretz, it's as if he tied her up. And put her before a lion. For just as a lion attacks its prey and devours it without shame, so too an Amaaretz beats his wife and cohabits with her without shame. So a person that doesn't care who his daughter is going to marry and just lets her marry whoever is nice, whoever comes from a family with money, whoever this, whoever that, is literally destroying his daughter and many times people realize the, the words of the sages that have already been written in stone for thousands of years they ignore it until it's too late until there's a divorce until there's a few kids that are going to be orphans until of uh there's already so many mistakes and so many broken hearts and tears shed and monetary losses and permanent heartaches this is why the sages were so harsh on the Amaritz, calling him a vermin, calling the, his wife a, uh, some, an insect. Why? Because you had an opportunity to learn Torah. You had an opportunity to follow the word of God and be part of the nation of priests, part of the holy nation. And you chose to take all of that and throw it in the garbage, thinking that all you need to do is not drive on Shabbat and kill people, and therefore you'll be fine. That's what you took the entire Torah, you minimized it to a few small logical things. This Rabotai is a lesson for each and every single one of us of how important it is for us to know what the words of the sages are. Now, for anyone who thinks that the sages are harsh 
on the people that are ignorant. You should know that the ignorant people, the Amearatzot, are much worse in their mindset on us. Says the Gemara. Says the hatred that Amea Aretz feel towards Torah scholars is greater than the hatred that the nations of the world feel towards Israel. And their wives hate Torah scholars even more than they do. People that are ignorant in Torah hate Torah scholars more than Hitler hates Israel. More than Gaddafi hates Israel. Because they know, their neshama knows that they're making a mistake. But they've developed such an addiction to their physical desires that they can't bring themselves to start learning Torah and stop their worldly desire and their lust. So when they see a Torah scholar, they can't stand him. And their wives hate the Torah scholar even more. And guess what? The Gemara continues and says, and one that hates all of the Torah scholars more than everybody else is someone that used to learn Torah and went off the derech. He hates Torah scholars more than all of them. This is something you can see in the world. People that used to learn in yeshiva, learn in a kolel, and left everything, they didn't just leave everything and just go on their merry way, become some software engineer in Microsoft, decide to play golf for the PGA Tour. No, no, no. They become enemies of the Torah. They decide to become missionaries. They decide to become people that are atheists publicly. They decide to become the biggest enemies of the Torah. Why? It's in the Torah. That's the nature. That's the reality. That's the reality. Why? Because their inner neshama, their inner soul knows that they made a mistake. But since they've developed such an addiction to their lusts, they can't bring themselves to leave the lusts, even though they know it's wrong. And they hate all of these scholars that remind them of their mistake constantly. So what does the uh, evil do? They like company. And when they don't have company, they make company. They make everybody else miserable. So this Rabotai Karim is an important lesson for each and every one of us to know how important it is for a person to aspire to grow in Torah. It's not just a matter of just your Torah knowledge. It's a matter of what kind of home you're going to build. What are your kids going to see? If the kids see their daddy learning, that's the greatest chinuch you could ever give them. If all they see their father doing is watching his stock portfolio, or watching the news, or having discussions about business, guess what? That's the worst chinuch in the world because the kids are going to want to do what they see their father doing. And needless to say, the daughters are going to want to marry somebody just like their father. Naturally, that's what they're going to want to marry. If the father is a big businessman that only cares about business, that's what the daughter is going to want. Unless you get some miraculous fortune that the spark of Kedusha enters the daughter and she wants to find a tzaddik regardless of the fact that the tzaddik is going to contradict everything our father says because he's a tzaddik and our father is not. 
But this is rare. It's not coming. And it's important for each and every person to know that all of this, all of this, says the Chazonish, begins with the tikkun of fixing the character traits. When a person fixes their character traits, they're able to observe the halacha with much more ease. When they're observing the halacha, they're going to get tested. When they get tested, they'll know how much they fixed their character traits based on whether they passed the test. If they fix the character traits enough, they'll pass the test of halacha. If they did not fix the character traits enough, they'll fail, fail the test of halacha. Meaning that the development of character traits and getting rid of the flawed character traits has to go in line and together with the observance of halacha. The more you develop your character traits in a positive way, the easier it's going to be and the more successful you will become at observing the halacha. The more you disregard your character traits, the more difficult and burdensome the halacha is going to be. And what's going to end up happening is that the person will simply live a life with a simple understanding of a Torah, a superficial understanding of a Torah to the point where they'll look at things as whatever is fun is good and whatever is not fun is not good. And unfortunately, that type of mentality is the mentality of an Amaaretz. And that type of Amaaretz creates bad fruit. Whether that bad fruit is bad kids or other things. When someone has good fruits, it's not necessarily always with good kids. Sometimes it's simply good behavior that will create entire families. Like this one story that I read to my kids tonight, where there was a, uh, a Rabbi Rodin from uh, Texas that one time had some, uh, some guy enter his shul named Leonard, American name, but he's a Jewish guy. And he says to the, the guy, Leonard says that I don't know much about Judaism, but I'm Jewish. I want to know more about it. And the rabbi from Dallas started teaching him more and more. And little by little, this Leonard started observing Torah and mitzvot, started keeping Shabbat, started coming to the shiurim, and literally became a from Jew. One day, this rabbi wrote and asked him, you're not part of the shiur, you're part of the community, you're part of everything. But I never asked you, what made you come to me that one day and ask me to teach you Torah? Like, what's to you? You're a businessman. You, you have everything that a person could possibly want from this world. What made you decide that you want to become more Torah observant? This Leonard said, I went to Israel. And you know, like everybody, I went to the Kotel. And I saw this huge wall. And it was beautiful. And it was holy. And you know, I was there and I didn't really know how to pray. I didn't really know what to do. I got a book of Tehillim and I had it in my hand. I read some words and wasn't much. But I did what everybody else does. But when I picked up my eyes, I saw that there's another Jew. I didn't know who he was. But he was reading also a book of Tehillim. And when he was reading it, he was crying and when he was crying he was crying with his full heart not from sadness because you can see sadness 
He was crying because he was connected to God. And he raised his arms and looked up at Shemaim in such a way that it made me so jealous because I never prayed to God that way. I never connected to God that way. And I decided that day, I want to be like him. I want to pray like him. I want to connect to God like him. And that's why I came to Yeshua that day. Now that guy that went to the Kotel, he's just another guy in, in Israel, another tzaddik in Israel that prayed with full kavana, without even realizing who's watching him aside from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu made sure that another person set of eyes looked at him, looked at him, put his kavana, he may be praying for refuah shlema, he may be praying for panasa, he may be praying for Torah, he may be praying for a lot of things. Little does he know, that behavior that he had, that took a lifelong of preparation to connect to Hashem in such a deep level, that also earned him another 310 world in Olam Abba, because he's now responsible to getting this Leonard to do tshuva. You see, Rabotai Yekarim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is constantly looking for ways to reward us if we would only give ourselves the chance and learn His Torah. And learn His Torah as best as we possibly can. Whether you have a good memory, a bad memory, good upbringing, bad upbringing, parents that are religious, parents that are Zionist and anti-Torah, Parents this, parents that, it doesn't make a difference. You learn Torah, you learn the Word of God, you fix your character traits, you follow what the Allah is, and only good will be your destiny. Only good. Will there be trials and tribulations along the way? Certainly, it's guaranteed. But that's the part that will get you to where you need to be. Yiratzon, that all of us will continue serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu even more and even better than we ever did before and the words of the Chazonish will be fulfilled in our lifetimes, in our family and each and every single one of the people that's watching this show today and forevermore. Baruch Adonai Le'olam, Amen ve'amen. To be honest with you, to give this lecture is a nightmare. If it was up to me, I wouldn't do it. There's gonna be some graphic details. Not Midrashim, not Gmarot. We did that already. Where is Genom in Alacha? What did the Hasidim actually say about punishment? Is there suffering? Is there a physical place of fire or snow? We're simply trying to verify that Hashem takes vengeance against the sinners or not. Do you believe that angels, demons exist? We're doing a Ouija board video today. This is by far the largest near-death experience study that has ever been conducted. What happens the moment you die? person needs to know that he's not going to be a friend. Yeah, I went to a place of timelessness. It was me judging myself on what I could have done better. Not the rebuke of some book. This is a rebuke of a Kadosh Baruch Hu when we go up to Shemaim.